Well, hello, I'm Dr. Tina Tan, and on behalf of CME Outfitters, I would like to invite you to today's educational activity entitled Equitable Prenatal Care, Preparing for Future Maternal RSV Vaccinations. Today's program is supported by an educational grant from Pfizer Incorporated. Today's program is brought to you by CME Outfitters, who's an award-winning accredited provider of continuing education for clinicians worldwide. So once again, I'm Dr. Tina Tan. I'm an infectious disease physician at Ann and Robert H. Lurie Children's Hospital of Chicago and a professor of pediatrics at the Feinberg School of Medicine of Northwestern University. And I'm also president-elect of the Board of Directors of the Infectious Disease Society of America. And I'm absolutely delighted to be joined today by my distinguished panel, who I will ask to introduce themselves. My name is Kevin Alt. I am professor and chair in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Western Michigan University, Homer Stryker MD School of Medicine in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Uh, I've also uh, played a role in uh, the approval of this vaccine. And we're gonna hear about the FDA, the American College of OBGYN and the CDC recommendations a little bit later in the presentation. Thank you, and I'm Latasha Rouse. I am a certified doula and a patient engagement consultant, I'm owner of Birth Sisters Doula Services in Raleigh, North Carolina. I am uh, the mother of triplets that were born at 26 weeks, six days, and um, did receive the neonatal or the infant um, RSV vaccine. So I have uh, so glad to be here for this conversation today. So as you can see, we've assembled a very diverse and lovely panel today. So let's jump right in and begin our discussion by evaluating the latest data for RSV maternal vaccination, including protection for infants from severe RSV infections. And specifically, we will examine maternal RSV vaccination as part of prenatal care, what you should know to best advise your patients. But before we get started, we wanna get our audience involved with a quick audience response question. And so this question is, which of the following agents is an FDA approved RSV vaccination for pregnant people? Is it the RSV pre-F vaccine, Abrisbo? The RSV pre-F3 vaccine, Arexi? Nercivimab, which is Bayfortis, or I don't know. So thank you all for answering. We'll come back to that question and discuss the correct answers later. So before um, we get started, um, I just want to go over a very important note. As you may have noticed in our question just now, our activity today will include both generic and brand names of all agents used for both clarity as well as consistency. So now, Dr. Alt, as you mentioned, you've been involved in the RSV clinical trials, and therefore, I'd like to have you share with us what we currently know regarding RSV in infants and young children. Well, despite being involved in the trials, I'm not sure I really appreciated the burden of disease uh, due to RSV in the first few months of life until I started digging into this uh, topic a little more. I am an OBGYN. 
I too am a parent of a uh, premature baby, and she received polizumab uh, many years ago after she graduated from the NICU. But this slide tells us that RSV is a leading cause of hospitalizations during the first year of life. And I'm sure we have some pediatricians in the group. I'm sure many of you remember spending January and February uh, in the inpatient ward, maybe when you were a resident, uh, taking care of these infants. But it's, it's and I, I like the bolding here, it's the leading cause of hospitalizations in the first year of life bar none. So I think that's a very important point and that's the, what we're trying to prevent with, the, with these vaccines. Uh, this has been a long, long road to get an RSV vaccine approved. Uh, some of you may have seen Sean O'Leary, who's a pediatrician at the University of Colorado, quoted in the news, and he talks about how long this has been going on. Uh, of course, we had a formalin inactivated vaccine back in the 1960s. Uh, that's the way we make flu vaccine and inactivated polio vaccine and some of those vaccines that date back to the middle of the last century. However, it was a uh, failure. It caused immunopathology and it was shelved for a long, long time. Eventually, there was some work done at the NIH with Dr. Barney Graham that identified surface proteins, particularly the prefusion F protein as a vaccine target. Uh, the same group of researchers also worked on surface proteins for uh, COVID, for coronaviruses, and that led to phase three trials for adults and pregnant women, as you can see uh, in this timeline. This is such a wonderful timeline. I'm going to steal it for any future talks that I give on this topic. And I'm going to uh, let Dr. Tan talk about this one a little, this question a little bit. Well, thank you, Dr. Alt. So I'm just going to jump right on in. So this question is, one of your patients is presenting to see you at the community health clinic where you practice. She's 35 weeks pregnant, and she's not really interested in getting the vaccines that should be given during pregnancy. She, however, is open to discussion and asks you why it would be beneficial for her to receive the RSV pre-F vaccine Abrisbo now. Which answer is accurate and individualized for this patient? Is it that the vaccine is only moderately effective to reduce RSV hospitalization? as compared to nirsevimab or bayfortis for neonates, but is safe and well-tolerated? Is it that the vaccine was found to significantly reduce RSV-related hospitalization risks and allow you to provide immunity to your infant from the time of birth? Three was, is the vaccine found to significantly reduce the risk of babies acquiring RSV from the time of birth within the hospital setting only? Was the vaccine found to reduce the baby's risk of hospitalization or severe RSV even further when concurrently given with nirsevimab or bayfortis to the infant after birth, or I don't know. So I wanna thank everybody for answering and we'll come back to that question a little bit later and discuss the correct answer. So audience, thank you again for answering that question and Dr. Alt, can you share with us um, the importance of maternal vaccination? Well, this, this is something we all learned in medical school and has uh, continues to be practical. There are several vaccines that protect newborns, including the vaccine we're talking about tonight uh, through this mechanism. There's passage of maternal immunoglobulin, IgG, from the maternal circulation across the placenta by active transport into the fetal circulation. 
And the IgG that a newborn has when it's born with, this is the mechanism that it has to uh, protect itself against some of these infections during the newborn period. The, the breast is not shown here, but it's some of the same mechanisms plus IgA antibodies. There are plasma cells resident in the breast that uh, produce lots of IgG and IgA and provide protection through that route as well. Well, I'm not able to advance here, so let's see. Aha. Small technical difficulty, I apologize for this. So this is the uh, answer to the question you just saw a few minutes ago, and it's also the results from the New England uh, Journal of Medicine publication from a few months ago. We actually used this for a journal club for the OBGYN residents, but it's the classic placebo-controlled blinded trial and the, one of the outcomes is medically attended severe RC-associated lower respiratory tract infection. And the blue line here is the placebo group, and the goldish line there is the vaccinated group. And as you can see, those lines diverge very quickly within the first few months of life, and that, uh, that protection is sustained uh, for 180 days and effective for hospitalization. And so, uh, you know, this is very good news as far as protection goes and, and offers uh, protection against hospitalization and severe disease in this vulnerable few, first few months of life. This vaccine was found to be safe. Uh, as you might imagine from a uh, vaccine versus placebo trial, that the most common adverse events were related to injection side and were more common than placebo as far as uh, injection site pain, muscle, or injection site pain, muscle pain, and headache was a little bit more common. Um, so not anything unusual than you'd see in most vaccine trials uh, versus saline placebo. There were no serious adverse events related to the vaccine uh, in this uh, trial. Here's that alphabet soup that I mentioned a little bit before, and all these recommendations have just been made in the past few months. So the FDA approved uh, the vaccine after the hearing in May that I was involved with uh, over the summer. Then there was a CDC meeting in mid-September, if I remember correctly, of the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. And then very quickly after that, the uh, CDC and the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists uh, made the, these recommendations for this uh, for this vaccine. So, and I am going to turn it over after that discussion of the clinical recommendations to Dr. Kim. Thank you so much. And I think that's really important information that you just showed with regards to the effectiveness as well as the safety of this vaccine. And the fact that all the major organizations recommend this vaccine for pregnant women. So why don't we go back and um, address the first question that we looked at, which is, which of the following agents is an FDA-approved RSV vaccination for pregnant people? And if um, everybody wants to um, put in their responses, then um, we'll see how we do. Oh my gosh, you guys did great. I mean, um, this basically shows that, you know, we're able to um, learn, we're all learning, and that's fantastic. Um, but, you know, as always, there's still much more to learn, but I think that's fantastic if you look at 
the correct answer, which is A, and you know, there was a 30% response um, pre-test and a 92% response post-test. So I think that's absolutely fabulous. So let's now um, discuss how to assess the impact of RSV disease on infants, on pregnant individuals, and the healthcare system at large, particularly among underserved populations. And in particular, we're now gonna discuss disparities in prenatal care as this relates to RSV for infants, pregnant individuals, and the underserved community. So as Dr. Ald pointed out, RSV is one of the most common causes of acute respiratory tract infection in people of all ages. And RSV here in the US typically circulates in the fall, the winter, and spring. So that usually encompasses the beginning of October to the end of March. And each year in the US, RSV leads to approximately 2.1 million outpatient non-hospitalization visits among children younger than five years of age, with the vast majority of the cases of infection occurring in full-term, healthy infants under six months of age. And this can um, also cause fairly severe infection in older individuals with up to 1.4 million outpatient visits among adults 65 years of age and older. Um, it can result in up to 80,000 hospitalizations among children younger than five years of age, 160,000 hospitalizations among adults 65 years of age and older. And notice the number of deaths that we see in this older population, 10,000 deaths among adults 65 years of age and older, and around 300 deaths a year in children younger than five years of age. If you look at the risk factors for severe RSV illness, um, we can see that premature birth, um, as Dr. Alt and Ms. Rouse both pointed out, they had premature infants that were protected um, with RSV monoclonal antibody. But notice that very young infants, especially those under six months of age, um, especially those in the first two to three months of age, are at very high risk for having severe RSV disease if they get infected. Also notice that American Indian and Alaskan Native infants and children are at particularly um, high risk for severe RSV disease. Anyone living in crowded living conditions, any person with chronic lung, chronic heart, uh, and anyone with a weakened immune system, all are at increased risk for severe RSV illness, as well as those individuals that have neuromuscular disorders. And if you look at the economic impact of RSV, it is massive. Um, while RSV hospitalization of premature infants can cost up to 5.6 times that of a full-term infant, full-term infants account for 82% of the RSV hospitalizations and 70% of the RSV hospitalization costs. I think what's even more um, eye-opening is that infants that are insured through Medicaid were found to be 91% more likely than commercially insured infants to be hospitalized for RSV in their first year of life. And medically attended RSV care in infants costs on an annual basis over $709 million. And if you look at the amount per birth, you can see that it's $187 for overall births, but it's $227 per publicly funded birth. 
So you can see that there is a health disparity that is occurring here. We look at the RSV hospitalizations that we're seeing with our last RSV surge, which was at the end of 2022 and the beginning of 2023, we know that the RSV hospitalization rates at the peak of the surge were about five per 100,000, which is about four times what was seen pre-pandemic. There were three to four times the number of infants and children being hospitalized compared to prior years with an increased number of older children requiring hospitalization. And the other thing which is important to point out is that there were up to two times the number of adults, including pregnant women, being hospitalized compared to prior years during this last RSV surge. Now, this is a very interesting study that looked at RSV cases in children under five years of age here in the US from 2010 to 2023, um, and really points out that it is the younger infant population that um, accounts for the majority of cases. So on the left side of the slide there, it shows the seasonal pattern for first-time RSV infection incidence rates in young children ages zero to five years. And on the right side of the slide there, it shows the seasonal pattern for infants between zero and one year of age. And you can see that when you look at the um, graphs there, there's a significantly higher amount of disease being seen in the younger infant population. What's also very interesting is to look at in whom the infections are occurring in. And here, what um, they looked at was that they broke the zero to five-year-old population down into those that were white, Hispanic, and black. And what they found in the 2022-2023 surge was that the peak incidence rate of RSV was two to three times higher in black and Hispanic infants and children compared to white infants and children. So again, really showing a health disparity. <laughs> what we know is that RSV among American Indians and Alaska Native children also occurs more frequently. And this was a study that was an active facility-based surveillance for acute respiratory infections among hospitalized American Indian and Alaska Native children under five years of age that were living on various reservations in Arizona, in Anchorage, and in the Yukon Delta region of Alaska. And what they basically found in the study is that Alaska Native and American Indian children had hospitalization rates that ranged anywhere from two to seven times higher than infants of other ethnicities. And when they looked further into these kids' living conditions, they basically found that the majority of the infants were living under very crowded living conditions with 35% or more of the homes not having any running water. So you can see that these individuals are living in rural areas with a lot of other people and in circumstances where access to healthcare um, is much less um, available than in other regions of the United States. But again, it really points out that these children are at much higher risk for hospitalization and severe complications when they get RSV disease. So the other thing that um, is really important to recognize is the recommendations by the CDC relevant to pregnant women and infants with regards to vaccination 
and monoclonal antibody. And the CDC recommends that either maternal RSV pre-F, the Abrisbo vaccine, be received during pregnancy or nirsevimab or Bayfortis be given to the infant after birth to prevent RSV-associated lower respiratory tract infection. But both of these are not needed for the vast majority of infants. You look at the RSV immunizations that are available. The one that we're giving pregnant women is the RSV pre-F, a Breezebo vaccine, which is an unadjuvanted bivalent recombinant prefusion F protein vaccine given as a single dose. And then the nirsevimab or Bayfortis is the um, longer duration monoclonal antibody that's indicated for neonatal infants under eight months of age that are born during or entering their first RSV season or to children who remain vulnerable to severe RSV disease through their second RSV season. So let's go back to the question that was asked before. This is the question where one of your patients is presenting to see you at the community health center where you practice. She's 35 weeks pregnant and is not really interested in getting the vaccines that are recommended during pregnancy. She is, however, open to discussion and asks you why it would be beneficial for her to receive the RSV pre-F vaccine of Rezvo now. So which answer is accurate and individualized for this patient? And you guys can basically put in your responses and then we'll see how we do. So the correct answer is B, and you guys did a fabulous job. You can see there that pre-test um, 49%, post-test over 75%. So it really highlights um, that we are learning something um, during this um, particular session, and we have um, more things to learn. But I think this is really, really impressive. So let's pause to answer a question before we moved on. And the question here is, which of the following is the most appropriate way to overcome barriers to maternal RSV vaccination in practice? Is it to ensure the patient that there is nothing to fear regarding vac the vaccination? To explain based on health literacy of the patient what the vaccines are and why they're important to receive? give the same standardized information about vaccines to all patients or require vaccination discussions for future appointments. Excellent. You guys um, really understand the importance of health literacy of the patient, what the vaccines are and why they're important to receive. So great job, everyone, great job. So some key takeaway points from what we've just learned is that we know that RSV can cause serious illness in infants, children, and adults with those under two years of age and then the older adults, 65 years of age and older, being at the highest risk. And vaccination is the best preventative method of protecting individuals from developing severe RSV, lower respiratory tract disease, complications, hospitalization, and death. And in RSV vaccination, um, for moms and a maternal antibody um, for infants. Unfortunately, there is a limited supply of antibody, the 100 milligram dose currently are available and they are the best methods of providing protection to infants, children, pregnant women, and older adults against RSV disease. 
So now we're going to delve into actionable strategies to address real-world implementation-related challenges of maternal RSV vaccination with a focus on guidelines and tools to overcome barriers to access. And Ms. Latasha Rouse will now provide us with some insight into how we, as providers, can navigate implementation-related challenges with maternal RSV vaccination. Now, Ms. Rouse, not all of our audience may be familiar with what a birth doula does. So can you now share with us what a birth doula does and your story on how you became a birth doula? Absolutely. So the definition of a birth doula is someone who is professionally trained um, on continuous physical support, emotional support, and informational support of a mother before, during, and after childbirth uh, to help her to achieve the highest and most satisfying experience possible. Um, and so I became a doula um, after working on several initiatives in my state and, and nationally and learning about the gaps that exist in healthcare and how information is oftentimes not given to uh, patients and families, including my own experience, um, in a way that I could understand it and I, and I knew how to ask the questions. I usually got home and I had questions that I couldn't ask during the appointment. Things happened so quickly. Um, helping people to prepare for those questions in advance. This is probably what's going to happen. You need to think about these appointments coming up. Um, and here's where you get good information is a lot of the prenatal work that happens when you're a doula. Uh, and that's the part that I love the most. People think it's the birth part, but getting people ready um, and helping them give, giving them the information so that they're empowered um, is um, something that I love. And so as I spoke about my experience of having my triplets at 26 weeks, six days, Vaccines come up often, um, and we have a lot of discussion about um, why I made decisions I made for my family um, because of the experience of having children in the NICU. Um, it, being able to explain what the experience is like and thinking about the logistics of a hospitalization, thinking about the logistics of, of a one child or maybe two being in, in a hospital um, is a very different thing. And that's not something usually that you hear from a clinician. You don't hear that. You hear about higher rates, but what does that look like? You know, how expensive is that? Who's hand handling child care? What support do you need? That's a lot for a family to take on. Um, and so I spend a lot of time helping people to understand that um, and helping them to get the information that they need. I'm going to share some tools that I use with families to help them get information, to help them to be a part of uh, the shared decision-making, and um, also learning what some of those uh, questions and challenges and barriers can be for them um, so that you can potentially use these in your work. So, it's important to start the conversations early. Um, and it can be something as simple as um, starting to ask about, are you taking childbirth education classes? Um, what are some of the areas of interest? So this is during the appointment. What, are, what, what have you been interested in? Because people key in on different pieces of the information. Sometimes it's breastfeeding. Sometimes it's, you know, infant care. But being able to take some of those key points and tie that into, uh, you know, thinking about, 
um, talking about that vaccine. So you can ask about the vaccine at that point and tie it to some of those key points of interest that they have. Um, and then being able to help them to recognize that they can always come to you for information. Um, sometimes it feels like in healthcare, people are so busy um, and they, they don't have time to answer you know, your questions. So being able to say, you can come to me for information. I may have someone that might be a great um, reference or, or support and they can speak to you about it. It may be me, but I want you to know that you can get information uh, is, is key. And, it's early, and these early conversations are really helpful because otherwise you have people who are on the internet trying to find information. Um, and the internet is very confusing for patients and families. And uh, it, it creates a lot of, of frustration because they're trying to find information, but they don't know where to look and you can't tell what's good information um, on TikTok. So being able to know that they have a place to come for information is important. So, Ms. Rouse, what happens if you're bringing up the um, maternal RSV vaccine to one of your patients and um, the patient is just adamantly um, against receiving it? How do you bring it up again? So, for that, I usually, I let it let it go for a little while. I'm in communication with my, my clients every single week at minimum. Right. So this conversation will get picked back up um, in a couple of weeks. You got an appointment coming up. They're probably going to ask you about it. Have you had gotten um, any information from the, the, the sources that I gave you um, that were helpful to you? Where do you stand now? Um, I just wanted to check in and see where you are, um, because I know you were still working on uh, getting information. Um, and I would put it in a way that you're still getting information, even though knowing that they were pretty adamant um, about it. And usually they will have other questions. And so once you start to give them that additional information and you start to understand what they have probably been told and where they're getting their information from, you can then uh, provide them with, you know, that redirect. Um, but that, that can help as we approach it as you're still getting information. And, and what benefits of the maternal RSV vaccine seem to be the most motivating to mothers to get it who are considering getting it? Uh, usually it is the protection for the baby. Um, and once people understand the protection for the baby, that is something that is is really like the, the, the big motivator. Um, it becomes the the baby. That's that's how you, you you know people are usually motivated when they're pregnant. They don't think as much about themselves unless they have something special or something that's going on um, outside of the norm. They're they're thinking about the baby. Yeah, great questions. Uh, so this tool, this brain tool is a tool that um, I often use throughout the journey in healthcare for pregnant um, people because they have not had the experience most of the time when they're pregnant. They're, this is their first time even going to a hospital a lot of times. So I introduced this tool very early and I have them use it as they start to make uh, decisions and start to learn about information and when interventions will be introduced. And it's called a brain tool. Um, and it just says, what are some of the benefits? What are some of the risks? the alternatives. Mom, what does your intu intuition say? What happens if we don't do this now or we don't do this at all, right? So being able to get that information, that gives you all the information that you can 
possibly need to kind of learn more about it. And in this, what happens if we don't do this now or not at all, being able to describe the experience of uh, what a hospitalization, what things people have to think about if that were to happen um, and how likely a hospitalization is for uh, a baby um, who does come down with RSV um, is a part of that what happens now if we don't do it right now. Um, but going through this gives them a tool that they can use throughout their healthcare journey, um, and it gives them a way to make sure that they've asked the questions and they've gotten them all in. So now that we've kind of gone through this, now is there anything else? And this is, and you're empowering them to um, have get the information that they need. Okay. And then finally, motivational interviewing is something that a lot of people do speak about, um, but they are not necessarily using often because it is something that gets tucked away, but it's very powerful in these uh, scenarios. We've heard people already state, you want to understand what some of the barriers are. So using motivational interviewing, this uh, rule um, helps you to move through the conversation. So you want to resist you know, telling them what to do. The recommendation um, is that I recommend that you would get this, but um, not, you know, I'm going to give you, you're going to do this um, and in and, and practice. Um, people, people don't necessarily like that. And then thinking about, you know, understanding their motivation. What are some of the values that they have? What are some of the needs and motivations? Um, finding out what some of those are and what are those barriers. We've had that come up several times. So that's very important in motivational interviewing. And then you want to be able to listen with empathy. People are making decisions on the, based on the information that they have at the time and what their values are. Um, that can change the way that you handle the conversation and having empathy in a conversation mean it can mean a lot to how people respond and what they decide. Um, so that is something that I, I often do. There are a lot of times when people make decisions I don't necessarily agree with, but handling them with empathy has um, always shown to help um, in those scenarios. And then empowering them, helping them to um, work to set those goals, um, identify what some of the uh, techniques to overcoming the barriers. Maybe they are looking at this from a lens that you are, um, you know, the barrier. You are the barrier because it's coming from a doctor, okay? So if there are childbirth education classes going on and you know that those are happening, being able to connect them to resources to get more information, um, even having some of those childbirth educators learn um, some of this information can be helpful as they are um, working to empower and educate the patients and families. So all of those are very good um, um, steps to get through motivational interviewing to help to make sure that this is not something that people um, have a knee-jerk reaction to. And now I am going to... Um, look at these, um, Dr. Tan and Dr. All. Uh, these tools that I use, um, are there, are, are, these are the tools that I use. Are there other tools that you use in your work? Well, I mean, you brought up some really important points. 
And I think when you look at motivational interviewing, what I found the most useful is listening with empathy and understanding where a person is coming from. Because mm -hmm. many people will tell you that, you know, a lot of times when people talk to them, they say, you have to do this. And they don't want to listen to them with regards to why they have some reservations about doing it. Right. So it really is very, very useful when you can listen to them and understand where they're coming from and seeing it from their lens so that you can provide them with the information to help them better make a decision. Can I ask a question? It's, it's going to lead to an answer to the question you just said. So, Ms. Rouse, when you're, so, you know, if somebody has adequate prenatal care and it's the middle of their pregnancy, so 20 weeks, do you talk to them about what's coming up at the next couple of visits, you know, because they're spaced three or four weeks apart? Uh, and, and what do you tell them about those? There, there's a fair amount that goes on the next two or three visits. What do you tell your clients about that? So I, I tell them about all the visits that are coming up for sure, what uh, prepare them for what questions that they already had going into these about they, what they're feeling and experiencing, um, if there have been anything pers persistent happening, and then um, if there will be these conversations um, and they haven't had it yet, um, I will say this is probably going to be uh, a conversation that's coming up. So vaccines um, or any other thing. So I do prepare them for those visits. And usually uh, when they are prepared and they go in prepared, um, I find that they do make uh, better decisions. They don't feel rushed. They don't feel stressed during the visits. And they've had some time to think about um, what might be coming. So that's important to help people to know what's coming at the next visits. And that doesn't necessarily have to be a doula. That could be something that people have like on a sheet that says, here are the visits that are coming. Um, and these are, you know, some of the topics that might you might discuss. That could be something that people um, prepare. And that way, these conversations start early. I mean, one of the recommendations about vaccination during pregnancy is about a decade old, the pertussis or the Tdap booster. And, you know, we purposely, we, we being the CDC and ACOG, purposely link that to the diabetes screening that we do about 24 to 28 weeks. And this one's a little later. So while you were talking about your methods, I thought, well, you know, you can prep the patient for, you know, what's going to happen after 28 weeks. You know, there's a whole series of things there that uh, checking for anemia and checking for diabetes and, and giving the pertussis booster to prevent whooping cough in the newborn period. You know, there's a whole thing, series of things that lead up to giving this vaccine. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And those are the road to uh, people understanding all of these tie together. Yes. Well, thank you both for such a stimulating discussion. I want to offer some SMART goals, which are specific action items that all of us can use immediately um, in our practices. And these SMART goals stand for specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and timely goals. And these include evaluating the available phase three clinical trial data for the RSV vaccines, particularly from the Matisse trial behind the FDA approval of the only maternal RSV vaccine, Abrisvo, making a strong recommendation for eligible pregnant women between 32 and 36 weeks of pregnancy to receive the maternal RSV vaccine, 
and using techniques as we just discussed, such as motivational interviewing to encourage the pregnant patients to receive the recommended vaccines that have been shown to improve health outcome. And I think that is really important because this is a way to level the playing field because we know that there are certain individuals that you know, for a variety of reasons are at increased risk for RSV um, complications um, and their infants are at increased risk for RSV complications and hospitalizations. So this is a way to get everyone of every um, ethnicity vaccinated um, so that we're able to provide protection um, for everyone. And so there are a couple of questions here. One is, um, is there a certain gestational age that is best to get the vaccine? Um, and can they get it with Tdap vaccine, flu vaccine, or COVID booster? And, yes. Can yep. you say yes to all those? Is that, yes, a, is that yes one of my options? Those. Gestational yeah. age is 32 to 36 weeks. And Dr. Alt? Um, Most of us have, you know, pre-existing immunity to flu and pertussis and and RSV. So yeah, again, thinking back to when you learned this a long time ago, you get a memory response and antibodies that take about two weeks. And so if that that time frame is great. You can give pertussis vaccine. You can give flu. You can give COVID. Yet you know, it's just a matter of how much uh, how much arm space you have that you want to get. How many you want to give. So. Uh, it would be nice to have some co-administration data. We do have that for flu and Tdap during pregnancy, but of course, with a brand new vaccine, it's going to be hard to find those data. Yeah. Um, and are there any reported Guillain-Barre syndrome among pregnant uh, patients or their infants after vaccination? And this is compared to placebo. And no, and, and there were, you know, none of us are adult uh, ID people, but there were in the uh, adult trials that was a concern, uh, but there weren't in the in the in the pregnancy trials. Right, and there weren't any in the infants of the moms that. Right, the I didn't answer that. So, um, the other question is: Do you recommend the vaccine out of RSV season? So my thinking about this changed and uh, over the period of hearing this data. So again, keeping in mind that I came into this as an obstetrician, you know, RSV season is so compacted that, you, you know, there's not a lot of benefit to going outside that season and it becomes horribly cost ineffective. So when I first heard about this vaccine, I thought, let's just give it all year round so it don't miss anybody. But then after seeing, you know, the data about when, you know, newborns get RSV, I realized that I was wrong. So, so I'm willing to go back and change my mind. You know, it's really <laughs> just this period of time uh, that we're going to give it. And of course, if we get a decent supply of Nasirumab, you know, we can eventually give that to older infants and maybe patch that, uh, you, you know, again, thinking about what might be happening in 2024. So. And um, why isn't the vaccine recommended to be given earlier than 32 weeks gestation? So the, I, we had a slide about that. And we ended up taking it out because we were afraid we were going to go over. So um, the clinical trials were done down to 24 weeks. The, the Matisse trial was done down to 24 weeks. And there was a signal for premature, premature birth. There was an excess of premature birth uh, in the... Um, in the people that receive the vaccine, and we could spend another 10 minutes talking about that. So I don't want to 
spend too much time, but if you're really interested, you can listen to the FDA uh, recording of this that's on YouTube. So, but basically, if you gave the vaccine after 32 weeks, there was there were no excess of preterm births. Uh, and so that was where the line was drawn. Paul Offit actually did, uh, he has a blog that he does. I did a nice blog about that a week or two ago, if you would like to see a much shorter explanation of what we talked about at the FDA. Yeah. Um, there's a question here about how they can keep track of patients that are supposed to receive the RSV vaccine um, in the um, electronic health record. So is there like a reminder that pops up? Um, yeah, what, I mean, you have a lot more job titles than I do. I would have asked you this question with your administrative uh, question. So I probably would have punted this one. This is, you know, this is going to be, you know, coordination of care is something we do not do well in the, in the American healthcare system and a fair number of obstetrical care providers, midwives, and OBGYNs work in, and family doctors work in multi-specialty health systems. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's an IT question if you're in that system. But of course, in a community like Kalamazoo, we have some people that are employed by the health, one of the healthcare systems or by the other healthcare system or independent from both health Care right. system. So, you know, I, I think, you know, it's going to depend on your EM, EHR and it's going to depend on if you can get that customization done. If that's really, yeah. Yeah. And there was a question here regarding something that I talked about regarding the increase in RSV in Black and Hispanic infants and the type of insurance that they had. And the vast majority of those individuals had public insurance or no insurance at all compared to private insurance. So there's another question here about guidelines for receiving the RSV vaccine after receiving COVID or after having COVID. I, I don't know that there's any particular prohibition on that. Are we talking about pregnant? Yes. Or, or no, the... this, is, this is pregnant okay. people. And there, at least from my understanding, there is no, um, you know, timing or um, other precaution that needs to be taken. I mean, these individuals can get this vaccine. Right. There, there are general considerations, you know, about vaccination. Don't vaccinate people when they're critically ill with COVID right. or Correct. symptomatic. But other mm -hmm. than that, I don't know that their prohibition. Right. Precautions, I guess, is probably a better word than prohibition. So there's a question here about whether a pregnant patient would be able to receive vaccination after 36 weeks gestation. It's a matter of timing. And, and you, you know, a fair number of people, including the people in the Matisse trial, deliver at 38 to 39 weeks. And so if you start getting past 37 and zero, you don't get that two-week buffer to right. make maternal antibodies. And, and then you end up, you know, in a situation where you were trying to get in a servomab for that baby. And so you're in a, you, you, you know, you've had a good intervention that is not so good because of the timing. Yeah, absolutely. And at least this season, you know, there is an issue with the 100 milligram 
um, dose of nirsivimab in that there's a supply shortage. So um, this season, it's probably going to be um, more important if we can get more of the pregnant women um, vaccinated so that they can give some protection to their young infants. So there's a question here about um, when we talk about RSV season, is it the time the baby is born or simply when the woman is at 32 to 36 weeks entering RSV season? There are some very eloquent diagrams in the CDC's discussion of this, but but basically, you know, you have three to six months of risk for the newborn, and you have a month or two of pregnancy left, and so that that gets you to September 1st to January 31st for that time frame. So, you know, and a lot of that assumes you're going to have a term pregnancy, but again, you know, the median age of the people in the Matisse trial was was 39 weeks, if I remember correctly. And that's probably the median in your community as well, so. Yep. Well, that's all we have time for today. And I would really like to thank Dr. Alt and Ms. Rouse for an absolutely stimulating discussion and to thank you, our audience, for joining us today. You can find the slides from this activity in the course guide under the resources tab of this program. And don't forget to visit the Infectious Diseases Hub at cmeoutfitters.com for more free resources and education for healthcare professionals and patients. And to everyone, please be safe, take care, and thank you for all the life-saving work that you do.